0: Over the last few weeks, we have been looking at the church and what we are as a church body, attempting to really define what a church really is. And and a couple of things that we've talked about, we've been in this for three weeks so far, and we've talked about, uh, first and foremost, that the body of Christ is a unified group of people that God has called out of darkness and made unified. And that means... That he has called us from a multitude of backgrounds and and places, different uh, economic situations, different ethnicities, different uh, ages, different all kinds of differences that exist amongst us, and yet he has called us together. And what what unites us on at the foundational level is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we're not unified really on any other level that that supersedes that. That foundation. Um, Then a couple of weeks ago we talked about what that then meant for us as both a local body and a global body. God has not only given us life and unified us, but he has called us into membership into a body, the body of Christ. And so we dealt with the global body of Christ being Christians, what that means for us globally. But then More importantly, probably for us on a daily basis, is what that means for us locally. We're called into a local assembly, and our local church is really supposed to emulate a a small picture of what happened globally. God has saved a whole bunch of people. And so when we look across our congregation, then we should see a people who are called member in a body that are also... A small picture of those saved people that he has called, right? So membership in a local body is is really another word for Christian. That's what that means. I, I'm a member of the church. I am a Christian. And then all the church around you affirms that. That's part of what it means to be in a body. The body says, Yes, that's a part of my body. And this part of the body says, Yes, that's a part of my body. And we talked about some uncomfortable things like church discipline and things like that, where These are cancerous portions of the body that aren't supposed to be there. Membership is is incredibly important, Uh, and we'll deal more with that in a few weeks, too. Um, But then last week we talked about the fact that we're unified, we're members of a body, but it's not as though we ignore the diversity that does exist amongst us. And just because we are unified by nature, God has done that, it's a supernatural thing, doesn't mean that that's not something we also have to fight for. Paul encourages the churches don't just exist, but actually strive toward unity. In other words, you can, it is possible to be sinfully disunified as a church body, and it's something you have to fight against disunity and for unity. And so we talked about several things that we do as, as just churches, not just our church, but churches in general, that seek to really divide people on the basis of other criteria, age, age-related groups like Sunday school classes and things like that, that, um, that often we have to push back against and say, no, we are one body. We want to get to know everybody. We don't want to get on our little ant trails and kind of get sidetracked and have people that we don't even know in our church body. We strive against that to get to know each other, which, by the way, We've got a potluck coming up this Sunday, which is a great opportunity to come together and you know put away introversion and, and all those things that you're probably inclined to, some of you, and push instead to actually get to know people and sit down and talk with people that you don't know and not sit at tables with people that you that you know really well, but actually sit with people that you don't know. Um, so these kinds of things help push against that desire, that, na- that kind of natural, maybe even carnal desire to stay with what we know, stay with the familiar and, and only be around the people that are like us. Well, tonight we're going to, maybe it's a, a slight shifting of gears, maybe, but I think it's a logical, something that follows logically, is how this community is actually created and fostered. How, how is it that the body of Christ, the church, actually is made And how does it come together? And I hope this will also help, as I hope this whole series does, help explain some of the things that we do and why. Uh, Some of the changes maybe that have been made and maybe you felt and and help to understand the reason why those things exist. So if it's true that God creates unity and uh, diversity, like we've talked about in the last few weeks, then supernatural community has to come through supernatural faith. Right? It's, a, it, it's, by definition, something that is not of ourselves. We've already talked about how we want to be around people that are like us. We want to be around people that make us comfortable. We don't want to be in awkward conversations. Right? We don't want to be around any of the things that, are, that make us feel uncomfortable or that are different to us. But what has happened in this supernatural community is that the people that gather together come together on the basis of a supernatural faith which that can only come from the supernatural. It's something God alone can do through His Word. That's it. Look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You'll remember this follows right on the heels of Him saying, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were subject to the wrath of God like the rest of mankind, children of wrath, he says. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. So, God has done this. This is is a gift of God. Right? It's something that that he actually does. And so some people it's funny, he says uh this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then people will turn that around and they will say, "Yeah, he he puts the offer out there and then I got to reach out and take it. That's what a gift is, right? He gives it he gives it and then you got to receive it." Th- that's not what he says. A gift is free. That's why he uses the gift analogy. That what has, God has done is raised you from the dead. That's what he's done. Now, how do we know that? Well, look at Philippians 129, which is just a couple, couple of verses later, or a couple of passages later. He says, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, uh, that, or, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So there's two things that have been granted, Paul says in Philippians 1.29. First is that you would believe in Him. That was given to you. That's essentially what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. How did God raise us from the dead? He supernaturally transformed you. That's how it happened. It's not a result of works, or you would be able to brag about it. I made a really good decision. He says the exact opposite. That's not what happened. God rose you from the dead because you were in your trespasses and sins and subject to his wrath. All right. He raises you by his word. And then he says in, Ro- in Romans 10, 17, he says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So wh- what does that mean? H- how, did, how does this whole gospel thing and faith thing actually work? Well, God has always throughout history created his people by his word, created anything by his word. Literally everything that has ever been made has been made by His Word. What happened in Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was formless and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. You go down through it, God says, God says, God says, God says. He speaks, and it comes about. And then John, in John 1, says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Without Him was not anything made that was made. So he personifies the Word in Jesus Christ, and he says He was there with Him in the beginning. He was with God, and He was God. God has always created everyone by his word. But then when we get into the Old Testament, into Exodus, when he gathers the people of Israel around around Mount Sinai, he gathers them together by his word. I created you. I called you. I spoke to Abraham and selected you as a people. You were not a people. I created you as a people. You're my people. Now, why? Because I said that's what's going to happen. So then it stands to reason that even in New Testament life, in New Creation life, we are also created by His Word. But the Word has transitioned now, hasn't it? So you have Genesis 1 1, or Genesis 1, He speaks and creates all the world. Exodus and the story of Israel, He creates His people by His Word. How does He sustain Israel and correct Israel throughout the Old Testament? He takes these people that he calls prophets and he says, I will put my word in your mouth. And so they go forward to all the people and they say, thus saith the Lord. I I can't say that. The prophets can say that. Thus saith the Lord. And what corrects his people, what sends them into exile, what, uh, what, what upholds them, it is the word that he gives to his people. Well then in the New Testament we see the word is personified in Jesus Christ. He comes to die for us and give us new life. And how is his church now sustained? 21st century philosophy? How are we sustained? How are we corrected? How are we built? The word, which is why Paul says in 2nd Timothy, it's God breathed. It's God voiced. It's in other words, It's His Word. It's able to correct, reprove, train in righteousness. The man of God may be equipped for every good work. Right? It's His Word. It continues to sustain. He's always created by His Word. So, if God's Word is central, uh, so God's Word is central to the identity of His people. So, Christianity, you understand, is not primarily... It's not primarily about spiritual experience. It's not primarily about warm community or even acts of service. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But it's not primarily about that. It is first and foremost news that is proclaimed. And that proclamation of the Word of God, what He has done in the Gospel, is what creates people. It's what raises people from the dead, the spiritually dead, mind you or the destined-for-hell uh, dead. So, what then is the, is the way that those people are created? It is through preaching and teaching. Just preaching and teaching anything you want to? Again, 21st century philosophy. How about 21st century psychology? Here's what will make you really good, and, and, and here's what here's will make you better. Here's what will make you feel really good. Here's how you need to talk to people. 21st century psychology? What about history? If I could just explain all the history of everything. Is that how you're created? By His Word. Again, it's created, we're created by His Word. By the proclamation of news. Which is exactly what Paul means. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Hearing through the Word. Faith comes through the Word. Through the word proclaimed, God has ordained that this take place, which is so weird and, and baffling almost, but He has ordained that we take this text of Scripture and the gospel message and we proclaim it to people, and the way that He saves dead sinners from death is through them hearing that proclamation of the gospel. Why did he choose that way? I don't know. Maybe we can ask him one day. But that's how he chose for it to happen. Here are born again, spirit-indwelt believers, Christians, with the Spirit of God in them, who go out with the message of God, and they say, this is what the gospel is. And upon hearing that, some have their ears opened by God, their eyes opened to truth, and they become born again. Right there. That's literally what he says in his word. How do we know that? Well, we'll look here at a couple other passages that are befuddling. Look at Ezekiel 37. seven. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together. Bone to its bones. Life coming back to the, the dead bones in the valley of dry bones here. Three verses later. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet in an exceedingly great army. It, then in Acts, though, we get a very similar thing. Here's Peter preaching the first sermon. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Uh oh, spirit has come in, opened their eyes, opened their ears, raised them from the dead and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts 13, 48 and 49. Paul preaching to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Well, isn't that an uncomfortable verse? Maybe we could just scratch that one out of our Bibles. And as many as were eternal life believed. So if new life is created only by God through His Word, then there is a question. How do we arrange our worship services in such a way that accentuates this very point that God through His Word is the only thing that can create life? The only way that's possible is if the preaching of the Word exposes the intention of the author to the congregation. The point that the author is making, that is the supernatural author, God through His Holy Spirit, that is the human author, the man who penned it. What is the intention that they wanted to communicate? What is the point that they were seeking to make to you, the reader? The only way life can be created genuinely is through the preaching of His actual Word. Not twisting the Word to mean what we want it to mean, but actually exposing what the Bible means, what its intention is. That's why sermons should be preached expositionally or in an expository way. And when we say that, what we mean is that it's designed to explain a particular passage of Scripture so that the main point of the sermon is also God, the supernatural author, and the human author's main point of the passage. Believe it or not, you would would think, well, yeah, of course you got to do that. The difficulty is recognizing when that's not done. Typically, a sermon that is not expositional or expository is normally referred to as topical or sometimes will be referred to as, in, in, for if you want the, the $50 word for it, eisegetical. So there's exegetical sermons, which means that the point of the text is pulled out of the text. There's eisegetical sermons that the point of the text is read into. The text. Uh, As an example, I figured you probably want an example of this. Um, I've actually heard this one preached, so I I wanted to kind of give one as best I can remember it the way it was preached. Acts 24, and you can open there if you want to, Acts 24. um, We can start in verse 22. I'll read the passage, and then... I will tell you what the title of the sermon was, and you tell me if that's I'm kind of setting you up really I mean I understand but acts 24 verse 22 uh, remember Paul has is now in custody and he is about to appeal to Caesar to go all the way to Rome and um, he's he's his his case is, uh, is being attempted to be adjudicated between the Jews and him by uh, Felix in this case. Verse 22, But Felix, Felix is, is a Roman appointed over the area, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, that is, of Christians in their gospel message, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, that is, Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, "Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you." At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, woo, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor. Felix left Paul in prison. Um, the title of the sermon was "Why You Should Not Procrastinate?" Now, I want you to ask a question. It's pivotal that you ask this question when we read the Bible, is, what, Luke is the author of Acts in, in this particular case. For what reason did Luke sit down to record this story? Why did he want to preserve this story for all generations? That is probably one of the most pivotal questions you could actually ask when studying the Bible. It's another way of asking what is his main point? What is he trying to get across to me, the reader? What was he trying to get across to his original audience? Do you think that Luke sat down and said, you know what? Paul's case gives a really good reason why you shouldn't procrastinate, and all churches need to know that. So I'm going to sit down and preserve that throughout time. Or maybe, if you open your eyes to what's happening in the text, you'll actually see a couple of things that are rather interesting. Felix keeps coming to Paul and bringing him and listening to his case, and does he decide the case? No. No. Why can he not decide the case? Because for all intents and purposes, Paul is innocent. Paul doesn't have a guilty bone in his body, and if you go all the way back to the previous chapter, Paul is given a chance to make a defense there, and still, he makes the defense against the Jews, and later Paul is going to tell him, you know very well the Jews have made their case, and you haven't found one guilty thing in me, that's why I'm still here and you're still trying to decide this case. So he can't figure out what is wrong with Paul, and we see that Paul is innocent. But, but it's also more than that. We see that not only is Paul innocent, the Roman government is not. In fact, not only is the Roman government not, the Jews aren't either. How do we know the Jews aren't? Well, Felix knows that Paul is innocent, and yet he needs something to sweeten the deal. He's hoping maybe if I keep him in jail, I can get a bribe. Well, it's apparent that the Jews have probably slipped something to Felix or to Portius Festus. Why do we know that? Because right there at the end, desiring to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison. What does that imply about the Jewish case? The Jewish case is contrived. Similar to how Jesus... Goes before the high priest, and they can find nothing with which to convict him, and yet they do anyway. Paul is now suffering the same fate. Those who are imprisoned on behalf of Jesus are suffering the same fate as Jesus. Later on, we get in the next chapter again in verse 9 of chapter 25, but Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor wanted him to go up to Jerusalem and be tried. The Jews are sweetening the pot trying to get Paul out of Roman hands and into their own hands. Let him come back into the temple. Just let us deal with this. But Paul's a Roman citizen, and he says, no, I need to go. So what is the point here? Paul maintains his innocence as a Christian should in the midst of persecution, just like Jesus did. Regardless of the corruption around, maintain faithfulness. Does that sound a little bit more like something that Luke would seek to preserve for the church over the course of its history and to a church who is now being persecuted by the Jews because of the testimony of the apostles? Is that what Luke is seeking to record for all Christians throughout time? When you're persecuted, maintain faithfulness. Why? Because Jesus did and expect that you are going to be tried in the same way that he was. You're not going to get a fair shake. It's not about procrastination. It has nothing to do with it. But if you read into the passage what you want to, or you come to the passage beforehand with an idea, I want to teach the church about procrastination, you should really go to one of the Proverbs that says that right out, right? So you can have these topical sermons. What's the problem with that? I mean, to a degree, there's times where topical sermons have their place where there's a particular topic that needs to be addressed or talked about in the main assembly we we understand that that can happen from time to time surely I've taught series on 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 the church and different things like that of course those are are topical but even in those my hope is to build the foundation for the series on the scripture itself so we might be going to a scripture this week that's talking about this particular aspect of of the church, and we might go to something else next week that talks about another aspect of the church. But what are we hoping to do there? I want to show you where the Scriptures actually say this and prove my point to you from the text itself. With topical sermons, if they're overly eisegetical, then I can sit in my office and go, what do I want to talk about today? Procrastination. What that does for the congregation is it puts you subject to the wisdom in my own head. That's it. You can only learn as much as I've got, which you can ask my wife. Not much. So that puts a a problem on the congregation. But but what is the problem? You're not actually being fed the word of God. And you'll notice about these often, these kinds of sermons, that they bounce around from passage to passage, from scripture verse to scripture verse. Every Joel Osteen sermon accomplishes the same thing. Every single one. He'll say his point, this is why this point is true, and then look at this random scripture verse from some obscure passage in some obscure prophet that you don't know the context of that, you don't know anything about it. Yes. Take it out of context, you have no text. So, if instead, God's Word sets the agenda for the sermon, then that means on Monday or Tuesday, or whenever I open the text and begin to prepare for Sunday's sermon, there are times, many times, I'm going to be surprised by what I find there. Basically, every time I've told... Rebecca in the office what the title is on Wednesday, and then on Friday I've said, you've got to change it. Or I've gotten up there and the title of my sermon has nothing to do with the title that's actually printed in the bulletin. It's because I realized it wasn't about what I thought it was about when I first started. We should be surprised because God's Word is setting the agenda. I should have put that up there first. The agenda. Just remember that. The agenda. Write that down. Um, and what that then means, and the benefit of preaching expositionally, is that God is the primary teacher of the church. This is the precise reason why deacons cannot lead the church. Why elders are appointed to lead the church. Do you know why? The difference between them in, in Timothy, in 1 Timothy 3. The difference between elders and deacons, elders are gifted to teach, and therefore they're appointed to lead. Why are they appointed to lead? Because they take the Word of God and open it in front of people and explain what it means. You cannot lead the church if you're not opening the Bible before them and telling them what it means, because God is and always will be the leader of the church. Christ is the head. If that's the case, then His Word sets the agenda, and the pastor's job is to open the Bible, read the Word, and explain what that means in its context to the people, and then apply that to the lives we live today. That is the whole goal of Feast that we do once a month in here, or we are now doing once a month in here, is teaching us to read the Bible and get to the point. Understand its context and get to the actual point that was intended for us to hear. God is the primary teacher of the church. And through His Word, God equips His saints. That's why Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. I can't equip you with psychology and philosophy. All of those things are adornment to to God's Word. Where philosophy contradicts God's Word, who wins? should. It does, whether we recognize that or not. But it's only through His Word that He actually equips His saints. What that means then for the church is if you give yourself to the Word, the Word does the work. I don't have to correct anything. I don't have to do any of that. Just preach the Word. It changes the culture of a church. You find people driven away by His Word, and you find people driven to His Word like a moth to the flame. So God creates His supernatural community of the local church through preaching as it exposes His intention for His hearers. And as we apply that message to ourselves and to others, this ultimately raises the dead. God gives them faith. They believe. They're gifted with the Holy Spirit who comes into their life and Guides them. And and it's those that you see, when the Word is preached, perk up. They hear, they understand, they grow. But there's another aspect, too, through which God creates this kind of community, unified community, and that's through prayer. Here's another befuddling method through which God creates his community, through prayer. The Bible obviously calls us to pray, but it's difficult to sometimes understand why, and I think for the vast majority of Christians, if you were to say, what is the one spiritual discipline you have the hardest time with? How many of you would say prayer? It's often difficult because we don't really understand it. We have a a hard time wrapping our mind around how how does this actually work. And sometimes we're tempted to think, because there's so much individual language to prayer, when you pray, go into your room, close your door with God who hears in secret and who knows in secret, will hear just you and him alone kind of thing. But you also will notice that even in Matthew 6, where that's the case, there's a lot of plural language also used about prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You notice how much plural language is in there. The church is commanded to pray corporately as well. When Jesus gives a model for prayer, He puts it in a form that commends it for our use as a body, both private and corporate. And there are many reasons why prayer is so important. We know that God uses prayer, both together privately and corporately, to advance His kingdom. We pray together because we need God to act. Look at 1 Peter 3.12 For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his, ears, uh, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Or 1 John 5.14 And this is the confidence we, that we have toward Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. John 16:24 Until now you have asked nothing in my name ask and you will receive that your joy may be full It's a mysterious purpose that the Lord gives to us that he chooses to work through the prayers of his saints Does he have to? No. He chooses to. That's how he decides to how he chooses to work. I shouldn't say decides like he's waiting on the prayer before He makes up His mind. That's how He accomplishes His will, is through the prayers of His saints. God is also glorified through the unity of our prayer. It is difficult to join together in prayer. I think I skipped, didn't I? I had two up there and I went right past it. There it is. Uh, glorified through the unity in our prayer. It is difficult to be in the same room with somebody praying to the same Lord and Savior and hate that person without then also being called to repent of your own sin of hatred in your heart. (laughs) I think um, our first prayer meeting here was a couple of weeks ago on Tuesday. And... There are a lot of mistakes you make as a pastor, believe me. And I left that prayer meeting, and immediately when it was done, I thought the biggest mistake I made was not doing that from day one. Huh. I know some others would may offer a, a different biggest mistake, but that's okay. <laughs> um. We won't discuss that one. No, no, no. We won't discuss <laughs> um, that, is, that That is singly the, the, the biggest mistake. Was why didn't I do that sooner? And why don't we do that more often? You can tell a lot about a church by those that come to the prayer meeting. That wasn't a guilt trip. I, I wasn't trying to do that. Corporate prayer helps us create unity amongst us helps create unity amongst us. God is glorified through the unity of our prayer. Obviously, God is glorified through our unity period. And so when our prayer unifies us, obviously he's glorified in that way, but it also helps foster unity amongst us. As we realize what enemy we're facing, you are not your your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers at work in this present darkness corporate prayer helps create unity because we understand then who the enemy is and what he's trying to accomplish but not only that what the lord is actually trying to accomplish in and through his church corporate prayer teaches us how to pray we have instituted prayer in our church service that goes according to a certain pattern for the most part we open with a prayer of adoration we move to a prayer of confession. We pray a prayer of supplication. I pray, before I preach, a prayer of illumination. The Lord would actually help us understand the Word that we've just read. We pray prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of mourning. What is that designed to do? Not only is it designed to teach us to worship the Lord as He has commanded us in His Word, but what is it also teaching you to do at home? Pray in accordance with these things. I hope that throughout the week, your prayers of confession have grown over the last few years based on what we do on Sunday morning. It teaches the church body that this is how we pray. We do the same thing on Tuesday. So how do we expect the supernatural to be at work in our church? Well, we celebrate the regular preaching of God's Word and we pray. God does naturally what is supernatural through His normal means of grace. That's how God works in and through the life of a church. His Word is taught to His people. And His people respond in prayer. For His will to be accomplished, for His kingdom to be To come. Questions Isogetical E I S Agetical E I S E G E T I C A L Isogetical E I S E G E T I C a L. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 If she puts that on a triple word score in Scrabble, it is game over. Pack up and go home. Yes. Questions? Yes, James. Warren Wearsby. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he's not talking. Yeah, he said when you open the Bible and you read it and teach from it, God speaks. When you close the Bible and get out on your own, he stops talking. <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, you know, our, even our modern uh, context for preaching comes from a, a lot from uh, Ezra Nehemiah opening the Word, giving the sense to the congregation of its meaning, um, so this is the, that's the job of the, of the preacher, is to get up there and shuck the corn, as they say, uh, take the word and expose it for the people, uh, because it's the word that does the work. He said, um, uh, when you do things, do, the Bible commands us not to do things out of selfish ambition, and when the pastor doesn't preach from the word, he's sort of kind of inflating his own ego, I guess is the, the way of saying that. Yeah. Po- or pocketbook, where the prosperity gospel comes from. Sure, yeah. I mean, th- th- honestly, the prosperity gospel is one uh, big Isegetical Sermon is basically all, all it is, is not understanding the context that those passages... I, 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 can't, I can't fathom how many people have taken Jeremiah 29-11 and just pasted it everywhere. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. And it's interesting we take that verse and put it over the archway of our door, and we go, Amen, I'm going to claim this in the name of Jesus. If you keep reading, he tells uh, tells the people through Jeremiah, oh, you're going to die, but your kids, I'm going to save them and bring them back to the land because I know the plans that I have for them. Not to harm you, but to give you hope in a future. The interesting thing is that the fulfillment of that passage comes just a few chapters later when Jeremiah teaches the new covenant. I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So the fulfillment of Jeremiah 29 11 is Jesus. Not my pocketbook. His plan to prosper me happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. Three days later when Jesus rose and even now he has ascended at the right hand of the Father. That's my prosperity. Other questions? All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, for your word, for its effect on our lives, for its power to change us from the inside out its power of correction, reproof, training in righteousness. That we may be equipped for every good work. Forgive us where we turn your word into merely an academic exercise. Where it just becomes something to learn and not to put into action. So often we forget that we are being trained for every good work. And instead, we become learners, always seeking to understand and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Forgive us. Lord, I pray that everything that was said tonight would not be received in a spirit of haughtiness like this is the way we do it and everyone else is wrong. But that we would take the word earnestly and seek after it, knowing that it corrects us, that you, through it, give everything that we need for our lives, that it is our bread, that it is our food, as it leads us truly to Christ. We pray for churches in this town That every single one of us, week in and week out, regardless of what the response is in the pew, would stand on the conviction of the word, open it, and give your people the food that they need. Pray that that would be done in pulpit after pulpit around this town. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.